Hello, and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, and today I have a really quick little mini episode for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about irrigation. So one of the things that are super important when planning your permaculture food forest or your garden are to bear in mind your irrigation needs. It's really important that you plant things together that have similar watering needs. You also want to plant things um, at the right times of year based on their irrigation and temperature needs and things um, to just make sure that you have the best opportunity for a successful harvest. Now, it's May in Ohio in zone 6A and we had a ton of rain towards the end of April. I mean we just had rain for goodness almost a whole week straight and spring in our area is usually pretty soggy. I mean April showers bring May flowers has been you know the going thing for years and years and years and years but With that in mind, you really need to be careful to leverage all of that rainfall. Now, there's lots of ways you can do that. Um, One of my favorite ways is to install a rain collection system. So that can be something simple like directing the gutters on your home and all of its buildings to divert into a rain collection barrel of sorts. There used to be cisterns. used to be pretty popular to have a cistern on the property, and all of the downspouts would drain into these enormous underground concrete tanks, um, and that water would then be stored there for use at a later time. Now, before we had commercially available water in our homes and well pumps and all of those things, this was accomplished with the water just going into these big tanks, and then you would have to prime a pump and pump the handle to get pressure built up to get the water out of the ground. As time went by, cisterns became a thing of the past for most people, and lots of places have completely outlawed them altogether, as over time, the um, the integrity, the structural integrity of these um, containers can become weakened, and they can become a hazard for, for people to fall into, um, and things like that. There were also concerns about people drinking the water that had been down there in these big metal or concrete tanks um, and, you know, parasites and things like that. I don't personally collect rainwater to be used as drinking water, um, but I do collect rainwater to be used for my garden. The water that hits our roof um, on our house and all of our barns otherwise just travels down the guttering systems and is diverted away from the home so that it doesn't flood our basement. But instead, by diverting that water into these holding tanks, we then are able to save that water and still introduce it into the groundwater system over time by using it to water our plants. So I'm not eliminating the water from our system because that water is still going into the ground. I'm just making sure that I divert it into those tanks and hold it until such a time that I need that water to go into the ground. So it's a way of controlling some of the um, the water flow on the property. 
There are lots of different types of rain collection systems. Uh, popular right now are using 55-gallon drums with a buffer or a filtration system on them to keep out leaf debris, insects, and things like that, and just collect the fresh rainwater in a sterile container that's not going to leach harmful chemicals in them. It's really important to bear in mind when you're establishing a rainwater collection system that you are not repurposing a container that has at any point contained a hazardous chemical or something that will break down and become hazardous over time. So food grade barrels are super important. And I'm not a huge fan of plastics, so for me to be able to use a metal containment system or a um, pottery of some sort or things like that are definitely an option that I would prefer. But at this stage in our permaculture journey, it's just not feasible for us to do. So we are setting up a system with some 55-gallon drums to collect the water that is um, coming down on our roof, basically. Now, there's lots of different ways to go about it. Um, generally, they're gravity-fed systems, and I like that because regardless of the power grid and my power needs, I'm still able to harvest that water because the input is at the top of the barrel and the spigot um, for me to collect the water from is at the bottom of my barrel. And so that allows me to simply open the spigot, attach a garden hose to it, and then open it, I should say, and then just use it to water as I normally would. The front of my property does not have um, super awesome access to my, um, my water in the home, so to use a garden hose. I do have access to that because I have a super long garden hose, but I have to run a garden hose all the way from the backside of my house all the way around front to water the things out front or to fill our pond. Now with my rainwater capturement system, I am able to water things in the front of the house using the drum of water that I've collected that's in the front of the house off to the side. And I'm also able to use that water to fill the pond just like nature would fill the water in the pond with rainwater. Um, so it's a great system for us. And we just uh, were drilling a hole in the bottom of the 55-gallon drum using rubber washers um, and silicone to seal up that, um, that opening once we put the spigot in. And, I mean, that's the, simple, that's the simplest way to, uh, you know, to do it for us at this point. There are fancy systems that you can purchase that are already commercially established that are, you know, designed to just plug and play, basically. You just, uh, you know, attach your downspout to a um, like a, a rain diverter. Now with these rain diverters, there's also um, a backflow protection so that if your rain barrel gets filled, if you have a particularly heavy rainfall day, it will backflow. And so if your rain barrel is full, it'll then go out a secondary output area and you can either divert that into a second rain barrel or additional rain barrels, or you can have it simply going to an overflow and draining the way it normally would drain into you know, an area of your home that diverts it away from the foundation of your home. We currently only have one barrel, um, but we're going to be setting up more over time. But for now, um, we have that system set up and it'll just divert the rainwater away from the house when the barrel gets full. Now in Ohio in July, um, usually about mid-June through mid-August, honestly, we get a lot of drought. Um, we don't get a lot of rainfall in the summer here in Ohio. You'll get the occasional summer storm and you'll get a little bit of rain here and there, but it's nothing like what we get in the spring and the fall. 
And so it's important for us to collect that water because it's less resources that I'm having to use. My water bill is not going to increase because I'm not going to be having to do a bunch of heavy watering for my garden hose. It's giving my plants natural water that's not treated with chemicals, um, synthetic chemicals to, um, you know, to add to the soil. So by being able to just give our plants rainwater, we are able to give them the healthiest source of water that we can personally give them from our property. You can set this up in an irrigation system using drip lines and soaker hoses that are attached to your rain collection system, or you can simply attach a garden hose and water, you know, as needed. You can use it to fill watering cans. It's a fantastic system. But the most important part about irrigation that um, I can encourage is to make sure that no matter what kind of an irrigation system you're using, you need to make sure that you're being very consistent with it. Consistency is key, especially in the case of plants like tomatoes. With tomatoes, oftentimes you'll see towards the end of a season when the tomatoes are just getting to their peak of ripeness and they're almost ready to harvest, you'll suddenly get the beginnings of those fall showers and the drought of summer in Ohio will be lifting and now you're getting an excessive amount of rainfall. What happens is that, that the tomato plants are going to uptake a bunch of that water and they're going to fill it into those fruits. At that point, they're absorbing more water than they can regenerate the cells to increase the size of the skin and the flesh of those tomatoes. And so the tomato itself, the fruit will swell and it causes the fruit to split. Now, the splitting itself isn't inherently dangerous to the tomato, but what does happen is that opens up the flesh of the tomato and allows for pests to enter as well as bacteria and other pathogens um, to enter into the tomato and it can really damage a tomato crop. By keeping your tomatoes consistently watered with a consistent water routine, it's one of the ways that you can ensure that you are going to have a fantastic harvest of tomatoes and it's going to minimize the amount of splitting that you have on your finished fruits. Another method that you could use to protect those tomatoes if you are expecting heavy rainfall, if you know heavy rainfall is coming and you've got tomatoes that are really close to being ready to harvest, you can also pick them early and put them in a sunny windowsill in the home and they will continue to ripen on their own inside without any risk of them splitting. Now, I personally don't like to do that. I prefer to let them ripen on the vine because I do feel that they take on a much deeper flavor. And flavor is one of the things that are important to me, as well as the nutritional aspects, of course. So for me, I don't tend to do that very often unless I have one particularly, um, you know, prized tomato that's really looking good. And I really want to make sure it turns out great. When you take those tomatoes in and you put them in a sunny windowsill, you're going to want to put them with the stem side facing down. Now, this is something common that I see, especially in grocery stores and farmer's markets. Oftentimes, people are storing the tomatoes with the vine facing upwards. What happens with that is the softer underside of the tomato is then absorbing all of the weight of the tomato. Now, the top part of the tomato closest to where it was connected to the vine or the stem 
is going to be the, the stronger, tougher part of the tomato because it's been holding the weight of that tomato from that area since the inception of the fruit to begin with. So when you store them with the stem side facing down and the bottoms facing up in a sunny windowsill, you're going to have less instances of bruising and damaging the fruit. You're going to have less rot of your fruit and you're going to have a nice even ripening of your tomatoes. Um, it's important to um, make sure that you keep an eye on them because they they tend to ripen fairly slow at first and then they're going to take off like crazy and ripen really quickly. And then you'll want to use those up or store them in your preferred method of storing. Um, so that's just a little quick tip for tomatoes and some irrigation things. We recently purchased some more raspberry, blackberry, and blueberry bushes to put into our um, food forest. And as I'm thinking about them, you know, we've got rain predicted for this afternoon. So before we go out and adventure this afternoon, we're going to make sure we get those plants in the ground so that they can absorb some of nature's liquid sunshine, as Bob likes to call it. Um, but that natural irrigation from the sky. You know, there are tons of different options for irrigation. Using a rain collection system is just one. You know, you can also use things that are fantastic like drip irrigation or soaker hoses. Um, those are fantastic options. We use that in our, gar our raised garden beds. It's a way for us to have a moisture meter attached to the hose that detects the amount of moisture. And if it doesn't detect that it's rained, then our soaker hoses are automatically going to turn themselves on and release very slow drips of moisture at the base of the plants under the foliage and allow those roots of those plants to have access to the liquid, um, the, the water. By making sure that we have soaker hoses and by bottom watering our plants, we're preventing any chance of sun scald from um, overhead watering. We're also reducing the likelihood of us having issues with powdery mildew. Um, in Ohio, again, that's a thing that's, that's pretty common that we have to battle every year, especially with our squash, is powdery mildew. It gets hot and damp and humid um, after all that spring rain and we start getting these warm snaps in May and that moisture gets into the air and gets really humid and if there's not good airflow between your leaves then you'll end up with powdery mildew which can decimate a crop. By bottom watering, it helps to make sure that that moisture level is a little bit more even. There's a little bit less moisture hanging out on the leaves to precipitate um, or I'm sorry to um condensate and turn into powdery mildew um, locations. And so that's another way that you can, can water. Of course, there's also the options of using swales, um, which are kind of earthen mounds and valleys that you hand create to direct the rain flow. So our property has a slight forward slope. Um, we sit on a very, very, very slight hill. Um, it's got a rise of about three and a half to four feet, depending on which part of the yard you're in. Um, so when you're standing on the sidewalk, if you look at our fence, you're going to look slightly up and it actually is about a three and a half foot slope for the majority of um, our yard, which means that when it rains, that water is all going to be directed forward and down towards the sidewalk and the road and the front of our home. By using swales and valleys, I can carve into the ground and build up areas which will divert and direct that water flow into kind of a natural creek or stream, if you will, um, but not necessarily flowing creeks and streams. It just directs that water along these lines. And what's really cool about these swales are you can kind of 
combine them with hugel culture and you know dig out some trenches and trench your your yard to direct the water flow and then in the area that you're hilling with the soil that you're pulling out you can add some logs and things into them to create culture mounds that you then grow on as the water travels through those swales and through those valleys that you've created it's going to slowly absorb into the base of those swales that you've created and it's going to over time soak those logs that are underneath um, you know the, the dirt and you're going to now have really rich soil that is full of organic life and those logs are going to break down and add nutrition to the soil they're slowly going to release the moisture that they're able to absorb so it's another way that you can do rain capturement system uh, systems on your property without using externally brought in things you can just do that with a shovel you can also um, use hugoculture in general to make sure that your precipitation um, levels are irrelevant. You can make sure that by adding those rotten logs to the bottom of your hugoculture mounds and then some sticks and organic matter and things as you build those hugoculture mounds up, you are adding a natural um, irrigation system to your soil landscape because you're adding something that's going to slow release that water like we just talked about. Another important thing with irrigation to make sure that you are maintaining irrigation and moisture levels in your soil is by using a good quality organic mulch. Now, it's important that you're using a good quality organic mulch. That doesn't mean an expensive mulch. Um, that's something that I feel like our culture has really struggled with understanding is that cost does not determine something's quality. So for us, our mulch costs us nothing but some time, effort, and the gas money to retrieve it. We receive wood chips from a friend of ours that is an arborist, and when he cuts down local trees, the the wood mulch that he has is green, good quality good mulch from the twigs and branches and leaf matter that he throws through a giant chipper. Um, so it is organic and it is local. And we get that by the truckload and then we bring that and we put that down. All of our pathways and walkways in our existing garden are uh, made of these wood chips. Below that we put down cardboard to um, help prevent some weeds from popping up through the wood chips. But by doing that, even though it's our paths... More of that moisture is getting retained around our beds even. And so the soil is able to suck that up from those plant roots when needed, even though the paths are just for us to walk on, it's still a way for us to maintain the moisture level in our garden. In our new food forest area, we have mulched the entire perimeter of the fence, um, save for the last part, which we have not yet gotten mulched because we've been working on other projects. Um, but we bury the mulch, um, or not bury, I'm sorry, we pile the mulch all the way around the perimeter of the fence, which helps to stop the water from oozing out of our fenced-in area and retain it. As we plant things in our food forest, we are mulching the area really heavily, putting cardboard down first. That cardboard's going to break down and it's going to be a nice carbon layer, but it's going to create a barrier between the grass and weeds and things that are in the soil now and prevent them from germinating or it's going to starve them of light and allow them to die. When they die, they're then going to break down and release those nutrients and that nitrogen back into the soil. And by that 
that time, the cardboard is going to be broken down and this, the ground below it is going to have very little weed pressure. So as we plant, we are adding more and more of that mulch material to make sure that our soil is able to stay moist. It helps keep the soil moist because it does not allow the moisture in the soil to evaporate as the sun is beating down on it. Soil does not like to be dry. Soil likes to be like a well-wrung out damp sponge. It, if it gets dry, then what ends up happening is weed seeds will start to take over and create shade on that soil so that soil can, you know, live. Because our soil, we really want it to be living soil. We want it to be chock full of organic matter. And when it's getting baked to death by the sun, it's no different than firing a piece of ceramics in a kiln. It's going to kill that soil and it's going to harden that soil. So sorry, I had to take a drink. I've got a tickle in my throat. Anyhow, um, so mulching. Now, we use wood chip mulch as our pathways. But what we use in our actual raised bed is good quality, organically grown straw. So we used to use wood chip mulch. Um, we did use wood chip mulch. And then we experimented in other beds with using the organically grown straw to test and see if we had the same or better results with the straw. And what we found was the straw breaks down faster, so it's releasing that um, nutrition back into the soil faster. And also it's a little bit softer material because the wood chips that we get are very coarse. There are some pretty good sized chunks in it. There's some very finely shredded chunks in it, but it's not like straw that you buy in a bag at your local garden center. It's not consistently sized. And it's not sifted and sorted for size. It's just a hodgepodge of different sizes, which means that as we put that down, some of our softer, smaller, tender seedlings were struggling to emerge from the soil. And so we found that if we used straw instead of the wood chip mulch in our beds, we had better results. Now, results are going to vary based on your climate and the type of wood chips that you have and things. But for us, we use straw as our preferred mulch method in our raised garden beds. Now, in our flower beds and ornamental gardening out front, we primarily use wood chips. We put down um, organic compost and then we plant into the soil and the organic compost mixture and then we top them with a heavy layer of wood chip mulch every year. Those flower beds in front of our home initially were barren and devoid of nutrition. They were kind of sad. The dirt was very powdery. It was dirt. It wasn't soil. It was it was dirt. And we did have some things growing but we just we just didn't have the luck that we had hoped for. So we started working last year to mending the soil and we found that we liked the aesthetic of the wood chip mulch and we liked the idea of it breaking down slower over time out front because we're not turning over the beds out front. We are focusing our efforts on the front of our home in planting perennial flowers and we do that and we do have that ornamental garden kind of as a way to attract pollinators to our property. We want pollinators to know that this is a good place to live. We have an ornamental pond out front with some fish in it. Now we have comets. Um, they're like tiny little goldfish or koi. They're feeder comets. Typically they're used and sold at pet stores um, for folks to use for feed as feeder fish for their bigger carnivorous fish. Um, but in our case, we just keep them in the pond. They help eat the mosquito babies so we don't have mosquito larvae growing in our pond. 
and they just add a pretty little decorative touch. But having that pond out front is a great source of water for the pollinators and the birds and things to come and be able to get a drink or take a little bath or whatever they need to do. And that is right beside all of our, or in the middle of really, our ornamental gardens. Another way I irrigate is I will go and fill my watering can up from my pond, my ornamental pond. And I will use that water to water my hanging baskets that are hanging from my front porch. And I'll also use it to spot water some of the plants in our flower beds that are in more direct sun and getting um, dried out a little faster than those that are in the shade of our um, curly willow tree that we have. We then use um, just rainwater to refill the pond or we will fill with a little bit of water from the garden hose if need be. Um, now, in the past, we've used the garden hose because the rainwater collection system hasn't been something we've had in the past. It's something new that we're working on here. And we found that if we just add a little bit of water at a time, it doesn't affect the fish. But if we fill it with fresh city water, it is a shock to the fish's system and it can cause them to die. So we just add a little water at a time and I take out the water and use it to water my fruits and vegetables and plants out front. Now, one of the nice things about that water is that it is loaded with nutrition because we have water hyacinth, watercress, and water lettuce growing in our pond. So there's lots of organic matter. And as the leaves and things die from that, they go into the water of the pond and the pond material slowly breaks down over time. The fish are going to the bathroom in the water. And so there's a lot of fertilizer in that water. And by using it sparingly to water with, it makes it a really nice balanced fertilizer that I can use on my plants to help spur some growth and to make sure I'm giving them good quality nutrition when I'm watering them. So those are just a few ways that you can look into for watering. Some areas, you know, you may have access to a creek or stream, lake or pond that you can use for watering. Definitely check with your municipality in the area because at times there are restrictions on using water from these places to um, water your property with. And this is only something you should be doing if you're using organic gardening practices and you have to be very careful because that water runoff, even if it's organic fertilizer, can dump that fertilizer right back into that water source. And it can contaminate the water with chemicals that will cause unrelated reactions or un unthought of reactions. So, for example... If you are feeding your lawn with a balanced fertilizer that's organic and safe to, um, to use and you're adding a bunch of phosphorus to your soil to try to get some, some growth, then that water leaches back into your water system, your, your watershed. What can happen is that excess phosphorus and nitrogen and potassium, all of those things, gets into the watering system. And then, like in the case of um, some, some watering sources around here, there's an excess of these nutrients in the water, which causes the algae to bloom like crazy, and it overtakes and can cause problems. 
So be very mindful of your watershed and your water runoff when you're doing these things. And if you're using things like a pond, creek, stream, or lake, or river to water with, just be cognizant of where that water is going to end up and what you're putting on the soil that could be leaching its way back into the watering system. Because as gardeners, it's important for us to be good stewards of the land. You know, my mission has always been in life to leave this planet better off than the day I was born. And if I'm polluting the watering systems and rendering a lake, river, stream, pond, etc. useless because I've created an algae problem, I've not left the, the earth in a better place. So that's something that's really important to me. And that's why I use the water from my pond very sparingly. Um, now, we are located on top of a natural aquifer. It feeds the Great Miami River. And so our aquifer is very, very, very deep underground here. But I'm still very careful of what goes into the soil because ultimately that is going to make its way down into our watershed over, over time. It's another one of the reasons why we're very particular about the chemicals that we bring onto our property and we try to avoid synthetic chemicals whenever possible and opt for organic and safe options instead. It doesn't mean that commercial or synthetic fertilizers or chemicals are inherently bad. It's just something that we personally have made a choice and a commitment to reduce or eliminate from our property. Um, even things like our cleaning supplies, we are gradually working on converting all of them to organic, natural-made products that are safe for the environment because long-term, we would like to put in a gray water capturement system. So what that means is when I do a load of laundry, my water from the laundry, instead of just getting flushed into the sewer to be treated by the wastewater treatment plant and pumped back into the system, I'm going to divert that and that gray water, that soapy water, would then be able to be used to water my garden. Now, depending on what kind of chemicals I'm using to wash my clothes, that's going to determine the viability of that being an option for us. If I'm using synthetic cleaners and surfactants and things on my on my clothes to wash them, then I really don't want to use that gray water to water my plants. If I'm using harsh chemicals to wash my dishes, then I don't want my dishwater to go into my gardens either. Likewise, with my shampoo and conditioner, body wash, and all of my, my shower products, if I'm using things in there that are, that are going to be harmful or contain chemicals that are not safe for my plants, then I can't divert that gray water either. Now, the gray water capturement system is something that we're going to be working on very long term. It is, um, it's something we definitely would love to be able to do eventually, but we're just not quite there yet. We'll get there soon, but we're just not quite there yet. Um, there's a lot of different options that you can do for irrigation in your garden or farm in wherever you're growing, but those are just a few of the options. You can also get some, um, I call them water balls. I don't know what the official term is, um, but it's a glass orb and it's got a long spout at the end of it. You fill it up with water and you simply turn it upside down and put it in your potted plants. 
as the soil in the potted plants gets dry, it's going to start sucking up some of that moisture and it allows you to not have to water your plants so frequently. I love that option. I think it's a really cool way to make sure your house plants are watered if you're going to be out of town and you don't have somebody tending to your plants while you're gone. Um, but that's just a way that you can um, practice irrigation practices even in an indoor garden. Super simple. You can also use strings um, to water your seedlings by simply putting a um, a recycled container on the top full of water, dangle some cotton string from that, and make sure that the string is in the water, and then run that string through the soil of your plant starts. And again, it's going to leach that water. It's going to suck that water from the cotton string from your vessel above, and it's going to self-water your plants. There are so many options available for irrigation it's best to definitely check out the options that work, you know, the most for your situation. But this was supposed to be a mini episode and it's over a half hour long now, so I should probably stop talking at this point and save the rest of the information for a full episode. I just noticed today that it looked like rain and it made me think about our irrigation system and how thankful I am for um, Bob purchasing that for me last year. It was a, it was a gift for me last year. And it was very thoughtful because it saves us so much time and effort in the garden. And it's really going to help our tomatoes this year. We did have a lot of problems last year with our tomatoes splitting um, because we had such a dry summer. And then we had such a damp early fall and late summer that a lot of our tomatoes had splitting. And so this year we are working hard to not have that be a problem. We've increased the calcium in our soil and the places where we're going to be growing tomatoes this year. And that's just one of the ways that we are working really hard to try to make the tomatoes as strong as possible and eliminate um, some of that splitting because adding calcium to the soil is going to um, give some strength to your tomatoes. It's also going to help prevent blossom end rot. Um, so that's another option for you to, to look into um, our ways to prevent common issues. Um, so look for that in a future episode, um, some mitigation strategies for common garden issues. Thank you so much for listening today. And I, I promised you a short mini episode because I got super excited. But instead, it looks like you're getting pretty much a full episode. I don't have many garden updates for you this week. Um, I did like I said, purchase um, a new raspberry, blueberry, and blackberry bush to add to our um, our, our food forest. Um, I, I call them bushes because at this point they are large and shrubby. They don't actually look like just the canes, which is what our other plants currently look like, our canes sticking out of the ground with little green leaves on them. These are large and more established plants um, that we've got going. Our elderberries are all taking off really well. They've all developed um, plenty of greenery. When we, um, when we planted them, we took them out of their containers and teased the roots a little. We had put them in some very loose soil. So we were easily able to examine the root structures on them as we were planted them. And I'm happy to say that all of our cuttings did establish roots and they're all doing great. Um, so they have no transplant shock at this point. Um, the... Apple trees are looking fantastic. The peach trees uh, were looking a little wilty, and so we watered them again this week, and they are perking up already, so I think they were just a little thirsty. 
and they are in a lower part of the yard. So they're at the bottom of a slight slope. So I thought they would be getting a little bit more water. So we hadn't watered them quite as heavy as we had watered the apples, but now we know that we need to add a little bit more water when we water them and they're doing great. And this week we did take more of the fence panels down to open up the yard even more to eliminate more of that division between the two properties um, that were working towards merging into one large property. Um, so that was this week as well. And we also planted all of our tomatoes, um, or most of our tomatoes, I should say, and several of our basil. I also got a purple basil plant this week, which I am really excited about. Um, it pretty much tastes like a standard basil or a sweet basil, uh, but the, the, the plant itself is so beautiful. It's a very deep, dark purple. It nearly looks black and it is so fragrant and it just looks fantastic. So I'm really excited to see what happens with that plant this year as well. Um, we also got some flowers and got those planted. We've got our hanging basket collection starting on the front porch. Every year I put a bunch of hanging baskets of flowers on the front porch just to brighten it up a little because I'm happiest when I'm surrounded by plants and greenery and life. And so we added that and that's the, the updates this week for the garden. I hope that your garden grows wonderfully. I hope I've inspired you or taught you something today. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you like this show, you like this episode, please do me a solid and share it with friends. And follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Subscribe or follow this channel so you can be updated when we have new episodes and new content going out. I am currently working on scheduling a big podcast interview that I'm super excited about. We're going to be talking with a Canadian company about some fantastic things they are doing in urban farming. And I cannot wait to tell you more about that when the details are firmed up. But um, stay on the lookout for that. And until then, have a great day. Get out in the garden and grow something.